Hello, and welcome to episode 78 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and joining me for this episode is Peter Wetz, uh, who is on Twitter at SPeteCore and is a frequent contributor to the Heavy Topspin blog at Tennis Abstract. Hi, Peter. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me on the third time. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, three times now. Um, Peter is also known to German speakers and badminton groupies as Petter Wetz, but we're going American style for the mostly English-speaking, uh, well, hopefully entirely English-speaking audience of this podcast. Uh, maybe not natively English-speaking, or but if you don't speak English, I'm not sure why you're listening. Um, but yes, Peter is our, our, our tennis abstract Davis Cup expert, which is a good lesson to any kids out there. If you stay in school, study hard and get your doctorate, you could eventually be the Davis Cup expert for an extremely unpopular tennis podcast. So um, dream big, kids. Um, I want to jump right in because we have the longest outline in show history, I think. We've got something like four pages of topics to talk about with the Davis Cup finals. We just wrapped those up. Yesterday in Madrid, of course, Team Spain and Rafael Nadal dominated the competition in very dramatic style. And I want to start with that. Like, Rafael Nadal was definitely the best player in the tournament, at least in terms of how everyone performed. He's ending the year number one. He's got these good hardcourt results. He's got a good team behind him. Spain is pretty much always a strong team in the Davis Cup format. And Peter, let's, let's start with that. Are, are there any teams in this competition that you think could have beaten Spain? Um, yeah, that's a very good question. I'm not entirely sure what to say because I watched the finals yesterday and I just thought of um, it was more or less a clean sweep and tried to, to, to answer the same question you just gave me and couldn't come up with any in quick answer. Um, it, before the res uh, finals started, I would have probably said, yeah, maybe France could could have a shot, or Serbia with Novak. Um, but there were some surprises, and I'm sure we will talk about them later in this episode. So, yeah, quick answer would be my first guess was France or Serbia, someone from Group A. But they they couldn't make it, and maybe also home court advantage helped uh, Spain to push them that far and to make this really very clear result um, yesterday. So, Do you think yeah. that if, if Switzerland had qualified, and I mean, these are a lot of ifs I'm piling on top of each other, but if Switzerland was here, if Roger Federer played, if Stan Wawrinka played, do you think that that, that would have been the, the team with the best shot to beat Spain? Yeah, I would definitely think so. So. I mean, the, the counter-argument is that, as we've also seen yesterday, that there are also nations like Canada to, who don't have a very top player that they can make it to the final. So that's um, one way to look at. But yeah, I think another country with a top, with a top-heavy team where they only have maybe two players, but they are at the very top, so to speak. And if they catch a good week, I think they, they can definitely get level with Spain. But then again, as I said, the, 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 the atmosphere yesterday, and I mean, that's, that's another story. And we don't know if there is really home court, home court advantage. But if there is any yesterday, there was something like that, at least. But yeah, the short answer would be yes, Switzerland, definitely. 
Do you think that we're already off of our outline here, and this is not a good sign because there's like 47 topics on our outline, but... 48, uh, Pardon? 48, not 47. Of course, 48. Yeah, Peter is adding some as I'm talking, I'm afraid. So you you mentioned the fact that that Canada was a bit surprising as a contender, um, and and maybe we'll get into the the fact that there's no longer reverse singles in this compressed Davis Cup. It's only three matches per tie instead of five. So every singles player plays only once. And if you're playing Spain, then you kind of have to assume you're going to lose the singles rubber against Nadal. I mean, you could get lucky. I mean, Shapovalov got close to winning a whole set. So, I mean, it's possible to beat Nadal, but it's pretty unlikely. But where teams had a chance against Spain was in in the number two singles. So the, the, the strategy is kind of accept the loss, win the number two singles, and then try to win the doubles, even if I mean, it didn't work in this case. But do you think that in the new format, does the, does the number two singles player matter more? I mean, it definitely matters more against top-heavy teams like um, like um, Spain is. So I, I completely agree with you where you can say just um, tr- try your best at the second singles rubber and go for broke and in the doubles. And But Spain has this exception where you can say that, and it floated around Twitter the, the last couple of days, that Rafael Nadal is also one of the best doubles player in the world. So it's also then this, this, um, this strategy where you say you go... Um, you try to get lucky or try your best in, in the doubles rubber to decide the tie is, is also quite difficult to, for, for opponents of Spain. And even if you think, I, I'm just trying to imagine how would it have turned out if, if Switzerland would have played and the opponents for Switzerland would be quite similar, for in, instance, if they meet um, in the doubles rubber, Wawrinka uh, or Federer. As a as a doubles team, we we know they've won the Olympics gold medal, for instance. So they also are singles players, which you may underrate in doubles, but you 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 shouldn't, obviously. So yeah, I would say for these top heavy teams, it's like the the opponents start with a zero one uh, disadvantage in these three tie rubbers. And maybe it. As you're saying about the doubles, maybe it's even worse than that. Like, Nadal is kind of a unique case because we saw Djokovic play play doubles in the, the quarterfinal and he looked okay on the doubles court. Viktor Troitsky did not look as good on the doubles court. But um, but Djokovic has never had as much doubles success as Nadal has. I mean, as you point out, Federer and Vavrinka have the Olympic medal and have, have had some success in doubles. But... He, at least according to the numbers that I've run, like Nadal is a way better doubles player. Uh, and he certainly gave added some more evidence to that claim this week. So so maybe maybe you're starting down like 1.4 to nothing or something. Yeah. Because worst case scenario, for if Spain is with their backs against the wall, they will send Nadal out in the doubles. And unless he gets tired, there's not much you can you can do about that. Um yeah, I mean, I watched two of, uh, I think I watched the, the semi-final and the final doubles rubbers of Spain. And it's just um, insane, the, the motivation level <clears throat> of Rafa. I mean, we all know how motivated he can get and how focused and everything. But this was still um, another, <clears throat> a, whole another a whole another level. We, we know 
how how motivated he can be, but still he surprised me, and I I didn't know who I should root for, to be honest. So typically I root for Austria, but not in this case, obviously. So and I was just thinking, and I was just looking at Nadal, and he was like motivating me to to <laughs> to root for him, and and that what I wanted to get at uh, my point is that I think that he also then can raise maybe the level of his um, doubles partner somehow. Not sure if this is just an entirely um, theory that you can base on numbers, but at least to me it, it looked like that he also pushed his, his partners to another level. I mean, Marcel Granoleas, for instance, he played in the semifinals with him, and in the beginning he, he wasn't looking that good, but um, then they made it somehow. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, there's a lot of analytical questions that I'd love to have better answers to with doubles. And, and partly we're limited by data, partly we're limited just because anytime you have a team sport, it's more difficult to figure out how much each player is contributing. Um, so, uh, yeah, I would, I would love to know if, if there are players who, who raise each other's levels or if there's an advantage to being, uh, being an established team. Uh, I, I, I heard that argument quite a bit on Twitter this past week that maybe the and actually, this is, the Brits are a great example since the, the I don't think the team they had uh, playing doubles is a regular team. But there there were a couple nations that had regular doubles team, like the the Germans, Kravitz and and Andy Mies. They, yeah, they play together all the time. So so that you think they have an advantage over a team that maybe are very good players but don't play together regularly. But we don't have data for that. I mean, it it seems like it's. It's probably true. I'm guessing most players would agree with that. I mean, the best doubles players stick with the same partner, so they seem to believe in that theory, but but we don't really know. Um, before we started recording today, I, I, I asked on Twitter if people had questions for us or topics they wanted us to cover, and we actually got six responses, which I think is the most I've ever heard. I've only done it two or three times before, but I was pleasantly surprised by, by how many of you were thought we might be able to answer your questions <laughs> you're you had a lot of faith in us and the first question fits in really neatly here which is is from the twitter user dami one fr or, or dom on on twitter and he just asked uh, just a factual question what's the current elo ranking in doubles for rafael nadal and I'm, i was tweeting about that a little bit uh during the week he has played very little doubles since 2016 when i first rolled out uh elo doubles ratings and he was around 1900 on the elo scale which at the time, well, I think was good for seventh, uh, behind the Bryans, behind Jack Sock, I think behind Cottenden and Piers at that time. So a, a top 10 player based on some really good results. He's barely played. Um, he, he played with Bernard Tomic at Indian Wells the next year and then played some Labor Cup, but that's that's all the doubles he's played. But he, it sounds like you agree, Peter, that he, he looks like a top 10 player on the doubles court. That's fair? Yeah, that sounds definitely fair. I mean... Just curious, what what's the the double silo from Jack Sock? Just to to have a comparison, when um, he was at his peak. At his peak, I think he was a little bit above two thousand. I oh, don't okay. have the number in front of me, but he. Yeah. I, there aren't very many doubles players who are much higher than about two thousand. I'm not sure the Bryans even ever made it to twenty one hundred. So the peaks are a little bit lower than in singles. Yeah. Um, and then Sock is is below 1900 now. He's still in the top 10. I think he might even be number three among regulars. I don't have that in front of me right now either. But um, but the if we assume there's no de decline for mm -hmm. Rafa since 2016, 
Um, he's, we assume he went into the Davis Cup Finals at about 1900. He then won three doubles matches, all against pretty good competition, I think. Uh, so I, I, I didn't, didn't have time to run those numbers today, but you figure he's in the low 1900s, and that puts him behind only Nicolas Mahou and Pierre Ugerbert. So if he were a regular doubles player, if he played at, the, at this level for a, a full season, he would at least statistically be the number three doubles player in the world. Uh, do you think that, I guess, I guess the, the question that pops into my head is if there's a disadvantage to being a regular doubles player, like maybe, maybe Rafa has some magic skills that work well in doubles if he's playing players who aren't used to facing him. Like Jamie Murray said that he, he took a long time to get used to, uh, to Rafa's skill. Maybe he didn't say that, but it looked like he was taking some time to get used to Rafa's spin. Like, the, these doubles guys haven't seen it, and it's very unique. So, I mean, do you think that if, if Rafa played a full season's worth of doubles, he would be top five at the end of that year? Yeah, I can definitely imagine that. So, uh, the, the only if there is, if his body will, will hold uh, that many matches. But uh, let's assume that just there will be no injuries, and he will, will play a, a, a more or less full singles and doubles schedule I, I definitely see him being in the top five in doubles and uh, I also like the theory about him his opponents not not being used to the to the spin I I mean I think that it's the same in the singles tours there are players who play him for the first time they also state the same things that they just they cannot um, practice the, the spin they, they get from Rafa in, in, with any other player maybe there's just um, nothing that comes close to this and so if they face it for the first time yeah that, that's definitely got to have an effect it is funny that whenever someone is facing rafa towards the end of a tournament often there aren't a lot of practice partners around so it'll show up in the news occasionally that you know, some local university player was pressed into service to be a hitting partner because they're a lefty like they're the best left-hander <laughs> around or i've even heard of, of people hitting with with john McEnroe because he's a lefty and they're facing nadal soon yeah and you kind of have to laugh at that that I mean, all respect to John McEnroe, but hitting with John McEnroe is not going to prepare you for facing Rafael Nadal. Definitely. Or hitting with a number one player from Ohio State University isn't going to prepare you for uh, for facing Rafael Nadal. Yep. Um, so another question from the same guy while we're on the topic of Rafael Nadal, uh, which we honestly could spend this entire hour on, but we probably shouldn't. Um, same Twitter user asked what the probability was that Nadal wasn't broken in singles or doubles this entire week. And uh, I, I didn't realize he wasn't broken in doubles, but he, it, he didn't lose serve in all those singles matches. In addition to that, he, he played the three-setter in London against Stefano Tsitsipas. Serve wasn't broken there. So he's on a, a six-match run which is the tied for the best of his career. He did it in 2013 as well, but he's never gone more than six matches without being broken. Uh, I th this is definitely a math question that I haven't worked out, and I don't think anyone really has the capacity to do in their head. Um, but let's turn it into a, a more speculative question that Nadal has improved over his career on hard courts a great deal. This seemed to be a pretty fast hard court. Uh, I mean, it... it is Nadal basically, is he on par with the rest of the big three on a fast hard court right now? Has he gotten that good? You mean in general or in, in surf aspect? 
Um, let's let's start with the serve. Yeah, I mean, I don't regularly watch Nadal, I have to say, but what I've seen this week is, um, and I've also seen this uh, float around on, on Twitter, is that his serve improved a lot in the past one and a half years or something. And I remember that he, he changed something. I think in the last off-season, or correct me if I'm wrong, he changed his serve technique a bit, and I didn't follow it closely. But what I saw this week is... I was thinking, wow, his his service games are so quick at times, um, and he he really seemed to make many easy points on serve, like one or two short rallies, and it, and he makes the point on his serve and really quick service games. So what I what I can say is that um, it seems really that he um, still could improve on his serve, and that makes for obviously being broken um, less times and having faster service games and things like that. And and he could go any directions, um, go far out. Um, even he did it yesterday against Shapovalov. Um, typically, that's the serve which you do against right-handers because they have the backhand on the, on, the, on the ad side, obviously. But it also worked flawlessly against Shapovalov and he was very effective. And yeah, so... Short answer is, yeah, what I've seen is he, he especially improved on his serve and not sure how much the, the court pace um, influences this, to be honest. Yeah, maybe it doesn't influence it a lot. And, and uh, we'll come back to that a little bit. It's I thought it was it, it was quite a fast surface, but it's it, it, I did run some numbers on that today. And it's it's not super fast. It is fast, but it's it's pretty much in line with uh, with with other European indoor surfaces. So. Nothing too extreme. Like he, you would expect him to be serving the same way he was in London, which I think is a pretty fair assessment of what he was doing. So another another Twitter question um, that fits neatly into what I'd hope to talk about. This comes from ah, I didn't copy down his name. I think it's Josh Berger. the The username is Jberger Tennis, and he asks which players did far better than their Elo expectations in the Davis Cup Finals. He mentioned Rublev and Pospisil, and those are definitely two of the big performers. Uh, I mean, my my immediate reaction is, I mean, Rublev's been having a great s- several weeks. Like his Elo's at a career peak. He's I think he's Elo top ten now. Uh, but Pospisil really came out of nowhere, and he's had some good Davis Cup results in the past. But uh, but Peter, is that is that your take as well? Do you think do you think Pospisil is the surprise of the tournament, or is there somebody else that we should talk about as well? Yeah, I mean, Pospisil is definitely um, a surprise to me, and not I'm not the only one there, I guess. And I, I think he won a challenger one or two weeks before the Davis Cup, but before that, he, um, there wasn't much. And he also, I think, if I remember correctly, he had some retirements, so he still somehow was recently still struggling from from his injury, which and and then this challenger win came more or less out of nowhere for me, and so. You could now, with hindsight bias, of course, or recency bias, you could say, yeah, it was expected that his form is improving and that he's expected to win a few matches here and there in the Davis Cup. But um, still, I think what he did here was exceptional and I wouldn't have bet some money on, on him to, to perform like that. And yeah, the, the tennis hipster answer would maybe be Yoshihito Nishioka. <laughs> That is going deep because you're really basing that just on one win, aren't you? Yeah, definitely. And three games against Novak. So, yeah. 
No, I, I was just surprised that he beat Monfils in two sets. So, but that, of course, could be a fluke. It could be, but I mean, he's had some uh, some solid results in his career. Yeah. Um, and I was actually surprised. I, I would have thought that Monfils didn't have a particularly strong Davis Cup record, but uh, but no less than Alina Svitolina was on Twitter defending Monfils <laughs> after that match, pointing out that he had a... I think she said he had a 10-3 and Davis Cup record, so maybe now... 10 and 4 or 11 and 4. I don't remember what else he did um, in the round robin, but uh, but still, still pretty good. But so Pospisil is is maybe a good example of what we were talking about before that the in this format, the number two singles player really matters. I mean, you wouldn't have expected going into this week that Canada would make it to the final because they had this surprisingly great performance from uh, from a number two singles player, but. Pospisil did that. I mean, he was able to, he didn't have to play really great players for the most part, but he did have to play some guys that I think both of us would have expected him to lose to. Yeah. Uh, and same thing with Shapovalov, actually. I mean, Shapovalov had to face down the number ones, but so he lost two of his five matches, of course, including the one against Rafa, but he was competitive against everybody, uh, had to play some some quality opponents, Berrettini, Bautista, not Bautista Agu, uh, uh, but Demon Noor. So it was a tough thing for him. For Shabavalov, I, I think after Paris, that launched him into the top 10 or maybe number 11 on the ELO list. And I've always been a little skeptical of Shapovalov myself because his return numbers are really not very good. But do you think he's a legit top 10 player? Um, that's a tough one. <laughs> um, yeah, it's... It's tough to say. I, I could see him in the in the top ten, but I, I'm not sure if I would say in next year or something. I mean, the, the, his, if you make him a graph of his curve, I mean, I, I wouldn't put him next year in the top ten. And maybe as a career high, yes, but not not as soon. I, I think I, I thought about his his playing style yesterday, and he reminded me a bit of of Dominic Team because he's just going for winners whenever he can. I mean, that's also why his style is so appealing, obviously, to so many people, because when it works, it just looks so good. But when it doesn't work, it often looks really not so good, <laughs> to say it like that. And he's not as good a defender as team. I mean, not even not even close, I would yeah. say. So and it, for team can have bad stretches of play but if if he's missing he can he, he can bring it back to something more conservative right it, yeah at least that's what what his current coach <laughs> practiced with him i guess he, he he got a bit smarter with his with his shot selection definitely yeah and he has some fallback strategy strategies right now so that that's that's a good point that's a good difference between those probably and what I also wanted to highlight for for Denis Shapovalov is uh, he he seems to be doing really good also in doubles. So he he won. I I don't know his stats now um, from this Davis Cup, but he 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 won the in the doubles tie against Australia, and also against um, Kachanov Rublev. And they also won uh, Pospisil Shapovalov. So that and they were doing really good recently. Kachanov Rublev. So I think he's. I didn't watch the matches, but I think he seems to also get um, along well in doubles. Huh? Yeah, I wouldn't. And if I, I, I wouldn't remember have co correctly, sorry um, to interrupt. On the, also on the regular tour, he seemed to have s at least some success at some Masters in doubles. 
but it, it's that's just from looking at the results. I don't know if his, his style is working um, specifically well in, in doubles. I'm not sure about yeah, that. I was trying to see if he shows up in my ELO rating. Uh, I have him at 1764 in doubles, which is... Not too good uh, and not too bad. <laughs> yeah, it is. And it, it the, the doubles ELO is... I feel like we could spend a whole a whole podcast. It would be a pretty boring podcast, but we could spend a whole hour just talking about some of the unexpected numbers in there. But he's he's 41st on the list, and it's probably a little higher than that since there's a few names of people who, who've retired. Um, so Julian Beneteau still qualifies, for instance. Mm. But um, So let's say he's in the, in the low 30s, but he's basically tied with Feliciano Lopez, uh, just a little bit ahead of John Isner. Uh, not that far behind Kevin Kravitz. I, I would have expected Kravitz to be quite a bit higher, but um, yep. but apparently not. Um, so it, it, doubles is tricky. I mean, it, it, one reason it's tricky is just isolating the individual performances, but it's also tricky because there's so many close matches. Uh, so it's you can end up in the you know winning a French Open by winning some really really close matches and not necessarily being that good not to say they aren't but you know it's it's possible um so he's in there i mean he did i I would not have i I had never thought about it before he's started playing so much doubles this week but he is definitely a credible doubles player um would you put him in the top 10 in singles yes i don't know and i realized when i asked you it was sort of a, a it wasn't a trick question it was a poorly worded question i asked you if he was a legit top 10 player which is sort of my sneaky way of trying to make the question more interesting but also more vague um, that means like not not a top 10 player like Jurgen Meltzer <laughs> maybe a top 10 player like I don't know who a better example is Meltzer was actually in the top 10 for Janko Dipsevich although he was in the top 10 for a long time ah really okay I think yeah. he spent almost two years in the top 10 I mean he wow he, I would I agree he sound he's fringy as a top 10 or you don't think of him as being that good but yeah. he, he was there for a long time um Maybe but, yeah, I mean, he should have played with Djokovic, the the doubles rubber, in the same and uh, was it quarter instead yeah. of instead of Viktor Troitsky. But who knows? I I really expected that to be what happened because I I wouldn't have thought Troitsky was much better. Uh, and also, I, maybe if it doesn't matter, wouldn't you throw Tipsarevich out there to have his his retirement be that much more special? Yeah, I, I don't know. It would make sense. Um, but I, I guess you, you kind of have to say Shapovalov is a top 10 player, at least in a few years, like you say, because once the big three retire, it does open up the field a little bit. Yeah. And I don't think we're going to get into bigger picture stuff, uh, in this episode, but then the current ELO ratings after the big three, the next eight players ranked from fourth to 11th. None are older than Dominic Team, and aside from Dominic Team, the oldest one is Daniel Medvedev. So we're talking Sitsipas, Medvedev, Zverev, Rublev, Demonor, Berrettini, Shapovalov, and I mean there are other people who could who could, who could join that group and and knock some of the other ones out. I mean Ajay Aliassime is a, a great example, and Kyrgios is possible. Uh, plenty of other people could improve and. And maybe even Yannick Sinner could 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 take one of those places, but eventually, someday, the big three is going to be gone, 
and there's going to be someone like Yenko who sits at number eight for two years. So at the very least, I feel like Shapovalov is is that guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then again, like I, I have on my list of potential topics that uh, this is something we've brought up on a lot of podcasts that I wrote about Milos Ronich back when he was pretty high in the rankings. And I think I revisited this with Kyrgios that it's really hard to become a very top player with a really weak return game. Um, it, it, you tend to think players can do it because they have these big electric games and the big serves, but you got to you gotta return well. And Shapovalov's return numbers are often so low that it puts him in the Ronich, Kyrgios uh, level. And that's not good enough. I mean, it's good enough to be number six, but it's not good enough to be number one. And maybe no one's talking about Shapovalov as number one. Uh, maybe it doesn't matter. But, uh, but there is that does put a limit on how high he can climb, I think. And that limit's probably about where Milos Ronish got, which is a, sh- a short stay at number four. Uh, but then again, I mean, there are players who do improve their returning. Uh, you wouldn't bet on it, but maybe he could do it. Maybe the fact that he's doing well in doubles, maybe that's a good sign. Not sure. Yeah. So one more thing we wanted to talk about with these players, especially Nadal, Pospisil, uh, Shapovalov, is the Davis Cup format here means these guys who make it to the end of the week they're spending a lot of time on court i mean nadal played five singles matches and three doubles matches i believe uh, pospisil was playing basically one of each until the last day shapovalov was was playing pretty much every possible match um is is this a good th- this is a open question but is this a good thing or a bad thing like the, the in, in one sense, it, it adds to the drama that, you know, Pospisil was too tired to be competitive the last day, but Nadal's the warrior that sticks it out until the end. I mean, do you think it adds to the event that, like, it's such, it's such a, it's so physically demanding for these top players who are carrying their teams? Yeah, I, I think it definitely adds. I mean, it, it creates some nice narratives for, for journalists one way. And also, I, I think from the fan perspective, I, I, I like it. I mean, you already see these stats floating around where I think I read um, Shapovalov and Nadal, they spent on court something like 12 hours or more. And I think that was before <laughs> the final. Yeah, the, I, I think so too, yeah. So, so yeah, that's, that's a lot of time. Shapo- actually, yeah, Shapovalov before the final, this is the link you gave me. Uh, this is a, a tweet from Raul Ruberti. Uh, almost 13 hours on court. Yep. So... He spent 13 hours on court in five or six days, five days probably, and then and then went out and played Nadal and you know fought hard against Nadal. Nadal had had spent 12 hours on court as well, so that's that's serious stuff. Yeah, and I I have this theory or at least this this I, I'm not so sure how much playing long matches really impacts um your performance on the next day i mean obviously playing eight matches in six days like rafa did has some impact and i'm also um definitely sure that staying up until 4 a.m doesn't help your performance next day but l- something like having a, a three-hour match um, at, at 7 p.m won't do too much on your performance on the next day at least that's that's my devil's advocate uh, hypothesis and i think we also had some discussion one or two years ago, I'm not sure if I remember correctly, where, where you and Carl were discussing about this um, one-day additional B 
break between semi-final and final or something like that at some Grand Slam and if it has an effect. And I think someone then on Twitter uh, did uh, a quick analysis and it, it doesn't have an effect. But that's, of course, a, a whole different uh, uh, set of, of, of circumstances. And, of course, as I say, if you play a complete week and you have one or two matches every day, it definitely has an impact. But I think it gets a bit overrated. At least that's my my take. Yeah, I think there's some truth in that. I, I remember the exchange you're talking about as well, and I'll have to dig up what that person found. Uh, but I, I think there's a lot of work yep. that should be done in in measuring <laughs> fatigue. And there's, there's so many factors. Like one of the things Stephanie Kowalczyk has looked at is... I mean, she, she calls it work. And I think one of the things she or someone else in her team has tried to quantify is the difficulty of facing certain types of players. So it, it's tougher to spend two hours on court returning Nadal's ground strokes than spending two hours on court against Ivo Karlovich, probably. Um, I'm, I'm probably grossly paraphrasing and maybe even misrepresenting their work, but uh, th- there's something there too. So there's so many variables to take into account. And... The other thing that makes it so hard to measure is, so Shapovalov had spent a ton of time on court, Nadal had spent a ton of time on court. What does that mean when they play each other? <laughs> like, if if one of them had sat out for three days, you can say, you know, maybe Nadal was really tired, but he had to play someone who was well-rested, or vice versa. But they were both really tired. So you not only need to quantify fatigue, you need to quantify fatigue on a per-player basis. Uh, and you do kind of wonder for someone like Nadal, he's had so many marathon matches, so many great moments in his career where he has played amazing tennis after five hours on a court. Maybe that was the factor. Maybe his fatigue curve is, even at age 33, is is better for him than Shapovalov's fatigue curve. Uh, but this is like stuff we don't know piled on top of other stuff we don't know. <laughs> so yeah. probably getting ahead of ourselves. Um, and since we're only to like n- number six in our outline and we've got 42 items to go, assuming Peter hasn't added any more at the bottom, we should probably keep moving along. Next question. How much do you think players care about this? I mean, is, is, are players, let's start with a, a simple way of looking at this. Do you think players were as invested in this event as they were in Davis cup in past years? Um, yes, I think so. From what I've seen, players were completely invested. I didn't see anybody um, like um, not giving best effort or something. And yeah, I, I wonder why or how it works. But um, there were different theories floating around. And I think it's just playing under your flag um, in front of not home crowd, obviously, just for one country, but uh, playing in front of at least a few people who root for you and are from your country. And as I said, playing under your flag, I think that that's obviously it seems just enough to 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 really get heavily invested in this and yeah i looked at a, at a few round robin matches from italy for instance and there were the, the, the stands were not full at all but there were still small flocks of crowds and players were completely into it and pushing themselves and so i think from from that aspect it worked um unexpectedly well so that's that's a good thing if you're saying that fabio fanini is out there pushing himself to 100 percent, then that's a huge accomplishment for any event he rarely does that when he's playing for himself um 
Do you think some of the factor is just that we're talking about teams here? I mean, you've got you've got a captain encouraging you on changeovers. You've got teammates. I mean, in the case of the Spaniards, your teammate is Rafael Nadal motivating you. I mean, do you think that flag or no flag that like the 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 team component sort of forces players to maybe not give a hundred percent, but give more than they otherwise would for the event? Yeah, that's a good good angle. Um, you're giving that so I, I also think that and I would support this hypothesis that um, just uh, having some sort of team competition is something that appeals to most players because that's something they don't have under the regular calendar year and except Labor Cup um, and some other more exhibition like team competitions um, trying to think of some the IPTL is gone as if I rem- remember correctly but I think that's something that the players are craving for so and I think that's a, a big part of the motivation um, they get just to to play in a in a team format and I think also Noah Rubin who's getting I think he's on the podcast with Mike Cation on a regular basis right now and he's also a strong advocate for um, changing, I mean, not sure if it, it will happen in, in, anytime soon, but I think he is also a strong proponent of these team-style competitions and he's saying that tennis should should move into that direction and I think that also, I'm saying this, I think that, that also supports this theory. Yeah, I think there's a lot of potential that we've barely touched. And this is something that, that Carl and I have discussed on a number of episodes before, that Every summer, at least for in America, um, you can't help but hearing about world team tennis. Uh, as a number of players will at least play a few world team tennis matches. There, there's uh, teams around the United States, but it's never really caught on. It used to be a lot bigger. I think it, it ebbs and flows with the amount of funding and sponsor support, which isn't particularly high these days. But having Billie Jean King's name behind it helps a lot. The USCA, I think, has been involved at various various points in time. But it, it's been going for decades, and it's never really taken off, which makes me wonder if, it, for all the, all the positive things we can think of about team tennis, if maybe there's something we're not thinking about, or it's just the nature of tennis doesn't lend itself to that. But one of the things that... I always forget about this until there is a team event that is a really great way to engage fans with new players. And this is the problem that the ATP has been worried about for almost a decade now. They're so concerned about what happens when the big three or the big four retire. Uh, it's, it's not natural for, say, a Federer fan to become a fan of someone else, except for maybe Grigor Dimitrov or something. Uh, but if he's on a team, like that, that's how... That's how fans remain invested in other sports, I think. Like, if, if you're a big fan of one football player, you're a fan of his team, at least as long as he stays there. You get interested in other players on that team. So maybe there are a bunch of Spanish fans who are way more interested in Roberto Bautista Agu or Feliciano Lopez now than were before. I mean, it, seem, it just seems like it's a missed opportunity to, to give fans a reason to cheer for more players. Yeah. Um, so... Next question. This is this is another one from someone on Twitter from Lisa Senior, who's furry yellow balls. There's no W in yellow if you want to look her up for yellow balls on, on Twitter. She she asked us. She said it would be interesting to explore the impact on the crowds, the atmosphere, etc. Had the hosts not gotten so far, so I, the event got really lucky that Spain 
was as successful as they were. I mean, maybe it is luck. Maybe it's just knowing you have Rafael Nadal showing up. But uh, but I think you can say they got lucky. Do you have a sense? What do you think would have happened if Spain crashed out in the quarterfinals or, or something like that? Would, would the stadium have been like 75% empty for the semifinals and the finals? What do you think? I, I think they would have been just fine. So maybe the... I've, I've, I've even saw, I even saw some numbers and um, it wasn't, I think it wasn't sold out in the knockout stages. At least maybe the final was sold out, but the semifinals weren't or something like that. That's right. The, the only knockout round that was sold out was the final. Okay. Uh, but I think for, for semifinals and finals, they would have been fine even if Spain wouldn't have made it that far. And I think I saw some numbers from last Sunday. So that was November 17. So just one week before the final. And there the, the tickets sales for semifinals and finals were already uh, going well. So, and obviously no one knew that Spain would make it that far. Just, I think the, the quarter final um, match where Spain would have um, played and then also played there, they, you could see that more tickets have been sold. So Spain, Spanish people were assuming correctly that they will get out of the round-robin stages. But yeah, I think um, they would have been fine anyway, but um, not. Uh, still there would have been a dif- difference, of course, but it wouldn't have been empty. And yeah. So one, one thing I wonder about, thinking just in, from a business perspective, uh, the way that... Gerard Piquet, the footballer who's behind this whole thing, and his fellow investors are thinking, I wonder how much the crowd really matters. I feel like the crowd is there to make the event look good. That can't be where they're expecting to make most of their money. I mean, if this is a, and if you think about how the the football World Cup makes money, like, yes, lots of people go, the tickets are very expensive, but I have to imagine a very large percentage of the, the, revenue for an event like that is sponsorships and broadcast revenue so you can only you can't put that many more seats in a tennis venue but you can you can put an infinite number of more people in front of in front of computer screens or tv screens watching the game or the match uh, and it, it it seems like that must be the end game like do you think it I'm not sure how to phrase this question. Does it matter that much where it is? I mean, in, in this case, it was nice that, you know, Spain had their home win. But, I mean, to the investors, I mean, is the crowd any more important than just sort of a prop to make it look good on TV? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think it definitely has to be somewhere where something like the semifinal and the final will be close to, to sold out. So there are not too many countries that, that would be considered and... I don't know the specifics, but how, how long is it um, uh, secured to be in, in, in Madrid next year too? I, I know next year. I think they're now saying it will be in the following year as well. Okay. So, yeah, and in, the, in, the, in the round robin stages in the beginning, it was a bit awkward because people on Twitter were obviously criticizing that the crowds are really not there. And then the, on the video, the, the, the screen, this the parts of the stadium where people should be sitting, it was completely dark. Uh, so the critique was that they are trying to um, not show how few people are there. Um, but anyway, I, I think, as you say, I think um, 
more money is there to be made in, in broadcast revenue, revenue, but I'm not sure how much they really can make uh, of that. I don't have, uh, <laughs> I don't know any details about how that works. Especially and this is one tennis. of the frustrations of yeah. It's one of the frustrations of being a fan of this sort of event or caring at the level that we do is we we don't have the numbers. The ITF isn't transparent about this at all. So, like I, I read, oh, I wish I had had kept this tweet handy, but someone sort of fact checked David Haggerty's claims, um, the representative from the ITF that various things about what he what he'd said about why they needed to switch the Davis Cup format. Uh, and a lot of it didn't really stand up against other things he said in the past about Davis Cup's reach and its broadcast partners. So, yeah. I mean, for instance, it, it said that the Davis Cup finals were broadcast on 47 channels worldwide or 47 broadcast partners worldwide. And then not this year, but the finals last year and, or maybe the finals in 2017. I don't know what that means. I mean, is that a lot of money? Is one of those broadcast partners, you know, the national television service of Malawi? Like, does it, we have no idea. So we kind of just have to take their word for it. And we have to trust people who we have learned not really to trust. So we have to do a lot of speculation and maybe that's fun. I, I get frustrated after a while. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, just just to add one more thing, I was beforehand I was really also skeptical about the format and everything being packed in one week. But now I, I can even imagine going there and you you just don't root for even if your country isn't participating. I as a okay, I'm I'm a really uh, I would say <laughs> I'm a tennis nerd, but I would really like to see all different ties and teams playing. And that's one big advantage I think of this format is that if you're really interested in different kinds of players, you can go there and see many different players. I mean, obviously, this won't um, make the stadiums full with people like me because that won't happen. But um, that's at least something that's that's good. And maybe it will fill the stadium. I mean, maybe, I don't yeah. see any reason. Like, if if people are going to travel to Madrid to see the the Madrid Masters in May, or they travel to Indian Wells, I mean, lots of people travel to Indian Wells in in California every year. Uh, if people are making trips for those events, I don't see why they don't make trips for this. Yeah, it, this is at good least that point. good. Yeah. So we really need to talk about the format, but a couple more things before we get there. Um, the surface, I promised we'd, we'd get there, and I did run some numbers on this today. I was under the impression just from watching the matches, I thought it was an extremely fast surface, partly from seeing how many sets went to tie breaks. Maybe you but... just watched too much Rublev. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I did. I did watch some Rublev, uh, and and I watched Viktor Troitsky not be able to respond to to volleys at the net. But uh, it it turned out that at, I mean, so with the usual caveat that my surface ratings they're based on aces controlled for players, and we we don't have enough data for individual events like this one. That we just we need more matches to be really sure of how fast the surfaces are playing. But with the data we do have. Uh, the Davis Cup Finals were the 15th fastest of 67 tour events this year. So 80th percentile or so, pretty fast, in line with Paris-Bercy, with Antwerp, with Metz, a little bit behind most of the grass court events, a little bit faster than Vienna and Basel. Also similar to Labor Cup, um, which I, I, I wrote something about, I think it was a couple years ago, maybe just last year. But 
Labor Cup is another event that w had a lot of tie breaks, but that might have been more about the players with Isner and Kyrgios and, and Sock involved. Uh, so I'm I'm happy with that. Like it, it it wasn't a crazy fast surface, but Peter, put yourself in the shoes of Gerard Piquet here and deciding where to play, what surface to lay down. Like, do you stick with this? Do you stick with a fast surface that maybe it works against Spain a little bit, but maybe it also makes things a little more unpredictable? Yeah, it would be interesting to know what influenced the decision firsthand. But maybe they also don't want to to switch back to play because, I mean, I'm not sure if, if uh, most people maybe would have expected if it's in Madrid. Spain is the heavy favorite. Why not just make it clay indoor? And... But yeah, um, besides that, I think the surface may just be fine. I mean, I can already hear the, the, <laughs> the Nadal proponents screaming that I'm, I'm wondering why they didn't maybe make the surface more fitting for Rafa. Do you, do you have a theory or they just didn't care? Or? Well, I think, I think you're right that it, it's partly what the players would have wanted because... They've been playing on indoor hard courts for several weeks now. It would be strange to switch to clay for one week. Maybe, I, I don't know what the logistics are of an indoor clay court. It seems like it would be complicated, but I don't know anything about it. I guess there are Fed Cup ties that lay down indoor clay, so it's possible. Uh, I don't know. I, I've also heard that the, the likely destination after Madrid, which could be two more years from now, is Indian Wells. And Indian Wells might be a good solution because it is one of the slower hard courts. So... It would be right about in the middle of, of surface speeds on tour. But I don't remember hearing anything about this. It, it, it may be just because of where it is on the calendar. It This is what it had to be. That could be enough. But I do think that if I were the organizer, I would I would make the surface fast just to make things a little more unpredictable. Um, and one last thing before we really dig into this format. Um this is, a, this is a very loaded question, but I have to ask, was the old Davis Cup really that great? So there's so much nostalgia. It was a bit painful to watch on Twitter. Uh, the, the tennis publisher, Randy Walker, said that he was in tears because of what they had done to, to this event that he'd loved for so long. Uh, other journalists were obviously looking for the negative. Not all. I mean, plenty of journalists were great, but there were some journalists who, who definitely were were talking up every negative aspect of the event. And personally, I thought Davis Cup was cool. There were some great matches, but it was not my favorite thing on the tennis calendar. Uh, I mean, I, I didn't. I don't think I wanted it to change. We can go back to the record and listen to the last podcast the two of us did together and find out what I really said a year ago. But, uh, but I was never super committed to Davis Cup, I don't think. Obviously, some people were. But, but yeah, so my question, was the old version really that great? Did, did we lose that much with, with this totally different format under the same name? I think we're just fine. So, um, I mean, in the, in the past it was like that. You have these two or three occasions per year where you focus for Friday to Sunday on the Thai or countries playing and then the day after you forget. So, and, and now it's just one week focused um, if your team qualified for the final, obviously. But, I, and, and the... First, first, I also was very skeptical, but then I, I watched a few matches. I saw players are invested, and that I think, I think we could just be fine. So I wasn't too nostalgic about it. And I mean, there have already been 
other rule changes also in the past years, which made me somehow already prepared for, for this big change. So for instance, I, I had to look it up, but um, I think it's since 2016, it's that they don't, um, that they play the type break in the fifth set, for instance. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that was already a tough pill to swallow for many people, also for me. And I mean, this is a completely different story right now, this rule change, but, and the complete format change, but I, I think it's, it's fine. And I think it, it can even grow. I mean, obviously there are many different logistics stuff still to work out and many things that didn't work as, as they wanted to, but I think they, they will try to improve even and fans will get accustomed to the new format. There was a lot of drama and I think that's that's what fans are really hoping for in every tie that there are epic matches i mean we had also epic and close matches and and lots of drama umpire discussions things like that and that in, in if you look from it if you looked at it from that perspective i think um people got what they wanted yeah i i think so too we definitely got enough drama for one week i think the the format made it easier to follow the whole competition because we're just this conversation we're having right now i mean we're both interested in tennis in general but i mean mike if if i'm following team norway they didn't qualify if i'm following team usa they didn't make it out of the group stage if you're following team austria you've got one of the best players in the world but they didn't qualify there's still a lot to to enjoy here. And even if your team did lose in the quarterfinals or something, then it's not that hard to stay interested. Like if, if your team loses in the quarterfinals in the old format, you're out in April and you're thinking about the world group playoffs in September. And maybe you don't even care by the time the, the finals roll around in November. Like if it's in France, then sure, the French fans care. But as a worldwide event, I'm not sure how much pull it has. Whereas the way it happened this week i think anyone who's interested on thursday is still interested on sunday and there was a lot of great tennis to watch on saturday and sunday Uh, so you mentioned there's going to be some tweaks i think you're absolutely right about that and (laughs) and one of the one of the main things is is the method of qualifying for these knockout rounds so we the tournament included 18 teams and i remember the very first time i heard this i did kind of a double take that somehow they were they were going to come up with a winner out of an 18 team tournament so the way they do it is 18 teams are split into six three team pools those three team pools play round robins the winner of each round robin advances to a quarterfinal knockout round and then two more teams Two second place teams from the groups also advance to the quarterfinal. And that in itself isn't that complicated. And it might even, I, I tweeted um, several days ago that made a lot of sense to me because, for instance, Russia, well, I think Russia and Spain were in the same group. And that's based on Davis Cup results over several years. Russia hasn't been that good. But imagine if Daniel Medvedev had shown up. Like Russia could have been the best team in the tournament or the second best team in the tournament. And they went in as a number two seed in a three-team group. You got to have a way for them to advance, I think. But the way it turned out, it got a lot more complicated uh, because you go down to their tiebreakers based on sets, based on games, and then the ultimate twist that I don't think anybody in the ITF really thought through was 
in a lot of these ties, the doubles doesn't matter. So, so it was Canada that qualified for the quarterfinals, gave the U.S. a a walkover in the doubles. So handed the U.S. a win, a straight set win, a double bagel win, according to the tiebreaker rules. Mm-hmm. So here, here's my here's my big question that I, I probably should be giving you a you know five hundred dollar an hour consulting rate for. But how do you fix this? How how do you how do you have a, a qualification system that isn't isn't open to to that kind of confusion? Yeah, what what the first thing is that, and I have already put it down somewhere in the show notes, I guess that it feels awkward to have the second best, the two best placed second place teams qualify. So I yeah, think... if you, if you can't say it smoothly, <laughs> it's not easy to understand. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> So I, every time I read this somewhere, I think it's also part of the system in football qualifications for World or Euro Championships. And I don't know why they do it like this. Why not just make, I don't know, 16 teams, four, four, uh, four groups of um, four teams and the best two um, qualify? I mean, there must be some reason or maybe there isn't. Why they well, do I think... It? I- yeah, I think the reason is, I mean, it, partly it, it makes more matches interesting because it, it, if you assume Spain is, is advancing, you need to have some way to make the, the other matches in that group interesting. But the other factor is, like I said, the, the draw isn't going to be perfect. Like It's based on, on rankings that are based on several years worth of results. So if, if you seed teams perfectly, then it's fine not to have any second place teams advance. But like, like I said, if you, if, if Daniel Medvedev shows up and you have a Russian team of Medvedev, Rublev and Kachanov, then if, if their seeding puts them in the same group as Spain, you can have the two of the two best teams of the tournament could be in the same group. I mean, would you be okay with a 16 team format where the, the two best teams in the tournament, one of them is eliminated in the, in the round Robin stage. Yeah, point taken. <laughs> but on an honest question, though, I mean, yeah. would that be okay? I mean, do you think that would? Do you think fans would be okay with that? Would you be satisfied if, if you know, Medvedev, Kachanov, Rublev were knocked out before the knockout rounds? Um, I mean, you could argue that the, the best team has to win against every other team anyway, so it should be fine. But of course, if you're a fan of the team, you want the team to advance as far as possible. To be able to watch the matches, so in that case, it it it, it wouldn't make it wouldn't make too much sense. So, I, I I get why why they do it this way, and also to make as many matches interesting as possible. But yeah, I think there is no right or wrong, so it's it there is no also no no quick fix. But I mean, wh- what would really be essential is I think to avoid these these dead doubles rubbers. I think did you already touch on this? Um, the dead um, rubbers in doubles. So where there were two cases uh, where I think Austria also against uh, Australia against Belgium, where they um, Pierce Thompson um, basically right. retired after playing one game, because... which is very clever because the when when the Canada gave the walkover to the U.S. they uh, at least technically they needed to have a doctor check three of the players to, to be sure that they were allowed to give the walkover. Mm-hmm. But if you play one game and then retire, only one player has to be injured. It really simplifies the whole process. Ah, I didn't know that. Okay, so they really thought it through. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it, 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 it came up again. It's going to happen again. I mean, it's silly to think that a team is going to qualify for the knockout round and then give it their all in a doubles rubber. Yeah. That doesn't make sense. So so this is another question from someone on Twitter. This is from Sebastian Renault, um, username MorgGo. And he says, yeah, not stat related, but how would you fix the dead rubber problem in round robin so it doesn't skew the results favorably for one team after a walkover? And it turned out it didn't matter. I mean, the U.S. got this six-love, six-love walkover result. So they had a big advantage when it came down to the spreadsheet and the tiebreakers and all of that. Uh, but they ended up not qualifying, so it, it didn't really matter. But uh, unless you do some big change... Do you see any way to change the rules and basically make it okay for teams to do what they're going to do anyway, which is give walkovers and doubles when they're dead rubbers, um, but still make the qualifying system keep its integrity, I guess? Um, yeah, I I try to think of a few ways. but <clears throat> So first, from a fan perspective, I think it should be avoided at all costs to have a match not to be played because people are there and they paid for their tickets and then they see uh, uh, fewer matches when they when there is a walkover. So I think there should be at least some way to get this match to be played. Of course, you cannot force the players, but also um, in, the, in the old format, we still had these dead rubber matches where often just the, the second tier players then still played the match. And it, I, I don't know if it count. It, I think it, didn't count to the official stats. I'm not sure because it, yeah, I was never really sure what what Davis Cup matches counted and which ones didn't. It was it, it's all down to the ATP versus ITF, and yeah, it didn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, exactly. So I think that could be one way to do it. So just play the match, but it shouldn't count as uh, the, the result shouldn't count towards the the group if the tie is already decided. So that could be one way, but maybe. Yeah, I, I didn't think it completely through, to be fair. Yeah, that's the... the I think the, the answer, whatever the answer is, it has to start with saying some. if a match doesn't matter, like whether you play it or not, if a match doesn't matter, the, the, the stakes are different, motivations are going to be... The, the incentives are going to be out of line. Like It can't really count. It doesn't make sense to, to have a tiebreaker determined by how... Like if Italy had to play a team that really cared and the U.S. had to play a team that didn't care, like the, even if even if there's no walkover, the U.S. has an advantage. And it makes mm -hmm. do you think it would work to just leave out the doubles in the in these tiebreaker scenarios? Just base the tiebreakers on singles results only. Oh, um, hmm, that's interesting. I, I think I mean, that would make it fair, at least. So, I... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that would that would do it. I mean, yeah. it, it people would some people would object because they're, they're very protective of doubles in Davis Cup, uh, and maybe sure. rightfully so. Um, and I want to come back to one other thing you said, Peter. That it's that you said you you'd want to have some way to make sure the matches get played. Um, and maybe I'm basing this too much off of the final yesterday between Spain and Canada. I joked on Twitter right after Nadal beat Shapovalov. I was really excited for this doubles match between Spain and Canada. Uh, and everybody knew it wasn't going to be played. I mean, of course you're not going to play a doubles match right after Spain clinches the Davis Cup. Um, so if if most of the fans who were there are supporting one one team or the other, 
do you think most fans care about getting their money's worth and seeing a match that doesn't matter? I mean, if it's the final, I think they are fine not seeing it. Or is that where you wanted to go with that? Well, no, I'm, I'm curious what your opinion is. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I guess I, I worry that as a tennis hipster, that my opinion doesn't really apply to most fans so if i go then yeah i want to see the dead rubber i want to see um oh who was it was it marcel granoyer and i forget who he was playing against that played their like 87 shot rally in a dead rubber yeah, julien beneteau it, it was beneteau yes. okay second time um, mentioned today already of beneteau pretty impressive yeah. so he his spirit lives on um so I want to see that. I'm assuming you want to see that. A lot of the people that we chat with on on Twitter want to see that. But the people who paint their faces with flags and and fill their country's cheering sections at Davis Cup, I don't think they care about seeing dead rubbers. I mean, it, yeah. I'm, I'm on your side there, definitely. Yeah. I mean, even more so when it's the final and they clinch the the, the crown. Uh, I think they they are just fine with celebrating and and not having to go through another match. I, I, I think that's safe to say. So does that mean then that uh, that we're ready to to reduce the importance of doubles even more? We're okay with a with a Davis Cup where doubles only matters half the time. I I wouldn't be ready. <laughs> you you wouldn't be ready. Okay, I I bring that up partly because of the the last Twitter question we got was from uh, from Luke Barrage who asked, uh, asked us to use the ELO ratings of the four players in the two singles matches to work out how often the doubles is decisive. And I did that. And we had 25 ties this week. And most of them were quite close on paper using the, the ELO ratings of the players who ended up playing singles. Um, the average likelihood of a doubles rubber mattering was 43%. Uh, which means you'd expect 11 deciding doubles rubbers. It turned out there was 12 instead of 11, so the, the numbers were pretty close. 19 of the 25 ties um, had a 40% or higher chance of, of going to a deciding doubles rubber. So I guess the trade-off is doubles has this place where it really matters. I mean, if it gets to the doubles, it's all about the doubles. Uh, the downside is half the time the doubles isn't going to matter at all, or maybe not even be played. Uh, I mean, is, the, is, there a, is there a way to get around that? Is there a way to, to make doubles more important more of the time? I mean, the obvious thing, and the, I, I'm not sure, I think you wrote it down somewhere, is to cha just change the, 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 the order of the matches played. So you could just play the doubles first or second. And that would maybe change the priority, obviously. So... Uh, I mean, in the old format, it was like that, essentially. So you played the two singles matches, then the doubles in, in the midst, and then again the two singles rubbers. So, yeah, I think part of the problem is that doubles is played last. And maybe one way to work around that would be just to to switch it, switch the order of... Of course, that's just uh, moving around the problem. Then you would say the second singles rubber is pointless often. Which might be okay. I mean, that's, yeah. it's, it's a good point that 
one of the things we lost is the the concept of rever reverse singles. So in, in the old days, like 2018, there would be two sets of singles matches. The first day was reverse singles where one team's number one would play the other team's number two and vice versa. I think I, I mentioned that on Twitter and a couple people responded by pointing out that, like, yeah, it's a big loss, but usually you'd come out of those days with the tie tied one rubber each because it's number one versus number two normally you'd expect the number ones to win so it, when you take that out you're left with a sequence of doubles singles number one versus singles number one and then the number twos so the number two versus number two match was always the least likely to be played um uh, maybe that's a, a solution i mean it, i think it would feel awkward at first but it it might introduce some new interesting tactical decisions for captains because you have if you have a number two player who can only play one match but is also good at doubles maybe you decide to throw him out there for doubles and lose him for singles because you think the the doubles is likely to be that important it's mm -hmm. it, it might make things more interesting uh, and by the way i just looked it up before the final um in five out of seven ties in the knockout stage the doubles was the deciding rubber if I'm so not it worked mistaken. out. It worked out being being close in the knockout stages. That's interesting. Yeah, but maybe that's just a fluke because if you include the final, it's then five out of eight. So it's yeah. No, it, uh, five out of seven makes sense. I think five out of seven is already with the final. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it is. Uh, I think you wrote it down as the before the final, and I edited it today. Yeah. Um, it, I guess it would make sense that you'd ex you'd expect the ties to be closer uh, in the knockout rounds because. You've got some teams early in the tournament who don't really deserve to be there. Uh, I mean, deserves the wrong word, but don't aren't at the same level. Yeah. Uh, where maybe don't have any good singles players. Like Colombia has a great doubles team, but they don't have. I don't think they have a single top one hundred singles player right now. So they were never going to advance. So it makes sense you'd have some you'd have some matches or some ties rather with Colombia that the singles was two and zero oh, and then it's over. But Colombia is never going to make it to the knockout stages. And that's, I think we should wrap it up with this last question. But if you do have sides like Colombia, that's not that strong. Um, Netherlands don't have a super strong team right now. There's a few you could throw in there uh, that seemed a little out of place this week. Do you think 18 teams is too many for a, a one week blowout like this? Um, from a, from a sports or perspective, I think it's the number is too high, but I think I mean the primary motivation is just the financial one. I, I I'd assume so. I think they, I mean it's I just draw a parallel there to football or soccer world championships where or European championships where they increase the number of qualifiers, and I think the main reason is that they just can sell more broadcast rights to different teams. And for instance, Austria just qualified for soccer. European championships and everybody's happy, but nobody talks about the fact that more um, nations are now able to qualify. So with the old system, we probably or maybe wouldn't have qualified. But um, yeah, to get back to my point, I think also yeah, from just solely from a from a sports perspective, it could be broken down to less uh, to fewer teams. Um, the competition then would probably be more um, competitive also in the round robin stages i mean it depends if that's what you want or if you want a, a, um, 
some sort of increase in competitiveness and the climax in the semifinals and finals, then maybe it's fine to have a, low, a slow start in the round robins where you have some blowouts and things like that. <clears throat> but yeah, as you correctly said, <clears throat> there are definitely some 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 nations there that maybe sh shouldn't really be there, or there where they are not expected to get to the knockout stage. But yeah, the, the same question also applies to the ATP Cup, maybe more <laughs> so. And it could be more interesting there because um, you wrote down, I think, how many matches will there be played at the ATP Cup? 150-something? I think I, I read someone said 129. Okay, I've, yeah. I, I've been a little bit afraid to even dig into the ATP Cup yet because if, if we have four pages of notes just on Davis Cup, then I'm, I'm afraid of what will happen with the ATP Cup. But yeah, as, as I think... It, I'm guessing where you were, what your connection was is ATP Cup has 24 teams, I believe, uh, and the that includes. I mean, obviously it's more, but it, it means you're having to dig deeper in the singles rankings. I mean, Colombia isn't in because they're it's based on the singles ranking of the top player, but you have to go down pretty far. I mean, because Radu Albert of Moldova is ranked high enough, Moldova is in this tournament. I mean, Kasparud is ranked high enough to make the cut, so Norway's in the tournament. I mean, I'm kind of happy Norway's in the tournament, but they don't belong there. I mean, they're, they're going to be destroyed. Uh, yeah. So it's it, it's a weird trade-off. I mean, I, I understand wanting to have wanting to have it be more inclusive. I mean, maybe we're used to having blowouts early in a tennis tournament, and we're certainly accustomed to that from Grand Slams, mm -hmm. but... But I don't know if it makes things a lot more interesting. If if things do need to be cut down to reduce the fatigue on top players or to allow for a different round-robin structure with more than with maybe three ties per team instead of two ties per team, maybe that's a way to do it, to cut down to, I don't know, 12 teams or something. But I'm impressed, Peter, that it, obviously you're thinking about the good of the sport, not your own personal interests, because you have to figure Austria is one of the teams on the bubble for Davis Cup. Like they just missed it this year, or did they did they play a qualifying tie this year for this year's Davis Cup? Yeah, we lost against Chile. And... Oh, that's brutal. Really should have won that one. Um, but Dominic team didn't play, did he? Um... I don't remember, <laughs> to be honest. I Maybe it doesn't matter because yeah. he went and lost to Emil Rusevori in Finland. The real uh, Davis Cup hero. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so really, it's Finland that we're missing in the Davis Cup. Um, but when, when Peter's saying that we could live with fewer teams, he's, he's essentially condemning Austria to a career in Group 1. So, so kudos for, for your, um, your broad view of things. Um, and since we are way over an hour and of course we finished like half of what we wanted to talk about, should probably call this quits for this episode. Um, Peter, thank you so much for joining me and sharing your Davis cup expertise. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. I'm always happy to discuss these with you and also a bit, um, sad that we only touched on maybe 20% of our outline, but yeah, better well, than nothing, I guess. Maybe I should save these notes and and we can we can come back to some of this stuff for ATP Cup because this is some of these controversies are not going away. Sure. Um, 
So, yeah, thank you for joining me. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you to um, all the people on Twitter who sent in some questions. I think we're, we're definitely keeping that as a feature and, and would love to hear more feedback. If you've made it through the 70 minutes or so of this episode, um, thank you very much. I'm interested in what, what you'd like to hear on the show, maybe who you'd like to hear since... Um, since we have great guests like like Peter this week and Eric Johnson a couple weeks ago. So yeah, I'd appreciate any any comments you have. Um, thank you for listening again. And yeah, we'll see you next time on the Tennis Abstract Podcast.